Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello there, football fans, and welcome to Footy Prime Interviews. Yes, it'll be a weekly uh, edition of our much-respected and much-beloved podcast <clears throat> where we talk to people, interesting people, we think. Maybe not. We're going to find out over the coming weeks and months uh, from the football world, from outside the football world. Today, it's myself and Craig Forrest talking all things religion and football. Our guest today is a broadcaster. He's a journalist. He's an author. He's literally a man of the cloth as of <laughs> last year. And for his sins, he's a Spurs fan. Welcome, Reverend. First time I called him this, Reverend Michael Corrin. Michael, welcome. Welcome. Do, do we call you Michael or, or Gov or Rev or, or what? You, you call me Sir. And uh, no, you, you, <laughs> you call me Michael. And you know, I was ordained a deacon actually more than two years ago. Is it more than two years ago? Yeah. Uh, but I was made a priest in uh, September, October. Anyway, f- fairly recently priested, but made a deacon because there are gradations. First of all, you're made a deacon and then you're made a priest. And after that, the next stage, if ever, will be a bishop. But I give you my word, I promise you, that will <laughs> never happen with me. <laughs> hey, it made for a great book, though, wouldn't it, one day? Uh, but no, the, the, the color looks good in you, Michael. It really does. Thank you. Um, Thank you. It's, it's a fascinating topic, I think, this. And out of those, those labels I gave you there, broadcaster, journalist, author, you know, vicar, Spurs fan, which of those do you think defines you the most at this point now in your life? Well, now it is as a as a priest. You know, I, I I took an oath and I was ordained into the priesthood, and that I don't want to sound too grandiose here, but that's the center of my life, and um, I don't always feel it, uh, but I hope I try to always behave it. Not sure I always get it right, but no, that that is the very center. That doesn't mean that that the other aspects are diminished in any way. You know, I was a Tottenham fan long before I was a vicar. I was a top, I, my dad took me to White Hart Lane when I was five, so that's a very long time ago. And um, I'm still in media. I still write columns a lot. I'm in the Star and the Globe and lots of places. I don't do, I don't do much TV or radio anymore. Uh, I don't have the time, and I'm probably too old now. But uh, you know, I'm I'm, sort of, I'm bivocational which sounds much more sexy than it really is. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, Michael, your dad, I believe, was Jewish. 
And your mom Catholic, is that right? No, she wasn't Catholic. She was um, nothing, really. Oh, uh, okay. But they were both very secular, and um, they didn't like religion very much. But my dad was, um, well, he was a Tottenham fan. So <laughs> my dad was a Jewish cab driver from Hackney, which if anyone knows about English sort of working-class subculture, you've got to be a Spurs or an Arsenal fan, um, mainly Tottenham, actually. And um, he... He had a respect for the Church of England because he saw it as quintessentially English and, and, uh, and so on. But otherwise, he um, I remember we, we would drive back from White Hart Lane every other Saturday for a home game and go through Stanford Hill, which was the ultra-Orthodox area. And my dad would cringe as he drove through it, which is not to be critical of ultra-Orthodox Jewish people. But for him, he just didn't feel comfortable with them. So I, I was raised with no religion at all. And... Um, when I embraced Christianity in my mid-20s, uh, I think my dad's attitude was, if it makes you happy, just don't tell me about it. You know, <laughs> whatever. He was a very tolerant man. <laughs> so what made you then, get into it, uh, Michael? Like, what was it that uh, turned you religious from uh, not, <laughs> not being so much? That's a good question. I, th- I was interested in it uh, even at high school. Uh, for some reason, because I, I went to a normal, uh, well, a grammar school back then. Uh, I'm, I'm coming up to 63, so we had what was called an 11 plus back then. And I grew up in an East London, Essex area, Ilford. And if you were relatively clever, you went to what was called a grammar school. Um, Tony Robinson, Sir Tony Robinson was at my school, actually, just a couple of years older than me. You know, a Baldrick from Blackadder. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's a very interesting guy because he was a Tottenham supporter growing up in the area. But I think he's a big Bristol City fan now because he lives there and big football fan, actually. But um, after after school, I went to a couple of universities and then I lived in the centre of London, a very small apartment right in the centre of London. And I remember thinking to myself, now, I've always wanted this. I've wanted to live in the centre of London and had a couple of books out quite early and I was doing fairly well in media. And I had, I had this feeling of emptiness, really, and uh, I, I, a vacuum, and, and I, I was searching. And I was very interested in Christianity, and I went to see a priest, and I was instructed. And I became a Catholic. That was in 84, 1984, um, and was a Catholic for many years until about nine, eight and a half years ago when I... I left uh, for reasons of um, it's down to me. I mean, it's not to blame anyone else. It's me. I I, I just I changed a, a lot, and on, on teachings on sexuality and life and and, uh, and issues like that, um, I moved to the left quite noticeably. I had a bit of a a transformation in my life, I suppose, and I couldn't continue in the Catholic Church. Yeah, what was that? Yeah, I mean that was because you, you were you were, you were very uh, anti same sex marriage uh, comments about AIDS and things like that. And then, like I, I got to tell you, I like the Michael now. <laughs> yeah, the other one was a right. Yeah, um, I mean I wasn't as bad as people make out. For example, I, I fully supported civil union, and I fully supported. Uh, legal protection for same-sex couples and uh, for employment and housing and so on. Um, and that the comment about AIDS has been taken very much out, out of context. What I was saying was that we didn't take any notice of AIDS when it was killing people in Africa. And we only took notice when it was killing gay men in the, the US. And I think there's something to that. 
mm. but I, I put it in a clumsy way, and that's now sort of used against me, understandably, but not completely fairly. But I was very much um, – but I did more damage, you see, because I was reasonable in that I said, look, we should have civil union, we should have legal protection for gay couples, but not marriage. That gave a certain veneer to the argument. Some screaming fundamentalist uh, shouting homophobia on television had no credibility, but I did. So I did a lot of damage. Uh, and for that, I mean, I, oh, I said sorry so many times over the years, and I paid a price when I, when I changed my, my view on that. Uh, but what, why did the change happen? I suppose it was gradual, but um, I went to work for Sun News, uh, I was at a faith-based TV station for 13 years, where, ironically, I was given far more freedom to, de- to, to debate issues. We had leaders of the gay community on all the time. And we didn't always talk about that issue, but all sorts of people came on the show. I mean, golly, I think I had Ian Paisley, Jerry Adams, <laughs> not together. Um, I, I was on that show once upon a time, Michael, remember that? I, I came on yes, for the World Cup you, edition. You were on so, that show, yeah. From Jerry Adams to James Sharman, wow. Exactly. We had Net, Benjamin Netanyahu, Stephen Hart. I mean, we had major <laughs> players on there, and uh, but only, you were the only one who really knew football. And um, <laughs> uh, But they, they allowed me to have these debates on. Where I went to Sun News. And they were wonderful employers. They really were. But they, they just wanted this cookie-cutter sort of Fox News approach where you just had conservatives on. And it rather – I was only there for about two and a half years, but it really opened my eyes as to what conservatism could be, and I didn't like it. And I felt increasingly as, – as a more conservative figure in more mainstream TV, suddenly I was the, the, probably the most progressive person on, on, in conservative media. And, and I, I just didn't like what I was seeing. And I felt increasingly alienated. And then I started to read and think outside the box a bit. And the, the specific issue that really pushed me over the edge was when, well, there were two things that happened almost, I think, the same week. Uganda was going to introduce even more homophobic legislation. It, it's always been the epicenter of homophobia in Africa for various reasons concerning conversion and um, uh, all sorts of things. But it was going to be even worse. I mean, you could even have been arrested, perhaps even executed, for being gay. And this, I thought, was just appalling, and I spoke out against it. And at the same time, there was a major charity, World, uh, World Vision, which does some very good work. And they announced that if you were in a same-sex relationship, you were welcome to work for World Vision. Now, quite clearly, that didn't come out of a vacuum. There were gay couples working for them, and they very charitably, in a Christian way, I would argue, just wanted to make those people feel welcome, I assume. But within, not within 24 hours, within an hour, the, the evangelical world, the conservative Christian world, came down on them like a ton of bricks and said, unless you withdraw this statement, we will have to reconsider partnering with you, which is a euphemism for we will have to stop funding you, which effectively means kids in Africa will die. And I went home, and I'll be absolutely honest with you, I, I just wept. And I don't cry very often. <laughs> and I, I just thought, this is, Mike, this isn't you. This is not you. Um, and it pushed me to think and think. And then I, I remember I, 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 I was called in at Sun News. And again, they had a perfect right to do it because they were paying me well to do a job. And they called me in and they said, um, you're confusing the viewers a bit with some of the things you're saying. They were too progressive. Uh, and I don't blame them for that. They weren't nasty about it. Um, and the more I did this, the more people, particularly in the gay Christian world, were writing to me saying, 
we'd like to meet with you. <laughs> and I met with them, and that was life-changing because I saw, I really saw a beauty in those relationships and a commitment and a love that, was, that is rare. And then I wrote a column. I was writing the columnist in The Sun. Oh, how times have changed back then. Uh, and I wrote a column apologizing to the gay community. And that opened the gates because at that point I was inundated with wonderful uh, letters from some from pretty famous people. I, I can't say who they were, but some very well-known figures, beautiful letters and the most incredible abuse. And I mean abuse. I mean, whoa, this was like a Spurs Chelsea game in 1972. I mean, this was, <laughs> this was good stuff. Uh, I, mean, I can laugh now, but it, it was, you know, threats. Yeah. My, my, my kids were being, uh, they, were, they were trolling my children's uh, social media. They were uh, calling on my wife to divorce me. And uh, I mean, just all sorts of and it and and you know efforts to get me fired. Well, they they did. They got me fired from all sorts of places. Um, it was a quite brutal campaign. And I'm glad now. I'm glad it's ha- it happened because I can say I went through it a bit. Uh, at the time, it wasn't pleasant. But well, yeah, I, I will say that you are a must follow on social just for your the way you handle the trolls. Because even to this day, you uh, you receive a lot of hate to say the very least. Yeah, there and are some you, people you, who, uh, that, I mean, there's a couple of guys who just, they, they obsess about me. I must be way better looking than I thought because <laughs> they, uh, they, they they just will not stop writing stuff about me. And, and But the thing about trolls, I mean, if they're really bad, you block them. But the main thing is never lose your temper, never write back in anger, mockery perhaps, and, and if you show courtesy, they get very upset because they don't, <laughs> you know, they, they want to provoke you. And uh, um, and Twitter can be a great tool for community. I mean, I've I've met some wonderful people on, on Twitter, uh, but you mustn't get into, into the mud with people. You, you mustn't do that. Well, it's interesting you say that because, uh, you know, Stephen Fry, and uh, uh, I know that he's one of my favorite people. Uh, in the world, uh, love listening to him. He's actually an atheist, which is uh, sort of interesting, but not uh, uncommon. And uh, what, do you, what is your relationship with him, and, and how do your discussions go with uh, with somebody like him who is an atheist? Uh, our relationship is entirely non-physical. I want to emphasize that. <laughs> um, what? What? Steve, I first got to know Stephen when all this happened. And uh, so eight, nine years ago, and he wrote to me the most incredible support. And I didn't think it was him, but Stephen Fry, because I've also always revered him as a a man of most beautiful intelligence. And um, Hmm. and then we got to know each other. And I can tell you, when I was made a deacon, when I was priested, he wrote me the most beautiful letters of support. And um, yeah, he's an atheist, but he's not one of these. Oh, you and your sky fairy, you know, child abuser. <laughs> oh, give me a break. You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, he's not. No. no he's intel- and, and I love intelligent atheism. And that, I mean, that's, I, I knew Chris Hitchens a bit too, because I worked at the New Statesman many years ago. I work for them again now. But um, so intelligent atheism, that's not the, the issue. I mean, that, that's, I, I've written about this. If you have a, a kindness towards people, if you believe in a better society, um, that's what should really unite you. And that, that means many people who are Christian, many people who are atheists. 
uh, I, I, some of the kindest, well, Stephen Fry is one of the best people I know. He's an atheist. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, we have four children. None of them have any religious, well, one of them has a little bit, but the, the others have no religious beliefs. And, and the re- one of them, I'd say, is relatively hostile to organized religion, but they're not hostile to me. <laughs> and, uh, that's the main thing i know it is amazing actually <laughs> you know michael I, I can't i can't guarantee you intelligent atheism i can give you a little bit of atheism perhaps in this show but uh, not intelligent that's for sure um faith and football i mean they are really intertwined in so many ways most, most clubs have a chapel well we're going to the camp new years ago now for, for a tour and seeing that chapel there and for someone that's not religious i walked into that chapel and just felt still felt something it's a very powerful place and something that's been there for a very, very long time. Is it because, you know, it's a very working class sport and working class people as a whole are more religious perhaps that then middle class, upper class, you know, is that perhaps the reason why, why football and, and religion and faith are so intertwined? Well, it's interesting you say that. I mean, it's been a journey. I mean, for example, Craig, when you were playing in England, I would venture you didn't know anyone playing professional football who was a Christian maybe one or two, but I remember speaking to the Manchester United chaplain back in the early 90s, and he knew of one or two players who were Christians, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't talk about it. They wouldn't mention it because the assumption was that other players would think they couldn't rely on them. Like maybe if they went out drinking when they weren't supposed to or something had happened that wasn't meant to happen, they couldn't rely on that player to be one of the pack, one of the team. And there's been a radical transformation in the past 20 years, and that's been the influx of of foreign players. But there was a time when it was really unusual for an English player. I mean, there are some clubs in Europe that have links to organized religion, Uh, Dynamo Zagreb, for example, uh, Real Madrid. But I would question some of that to, to a certain degree. And players making the sign of the cross running on, that's often cultural rather than anything else. But you now have players who, um, uh, I mean, Lucas Mora, you know, Spurs player, go and look at his Twitter page. You might be surprised by what you see there. Um, some of the Brazilians are dedicated Pentecostal Christians. They're not, not Catholic, they're born-again Christian. Um, what's his name? Alisson, the Liverpool goalkeeper. Uh, he's, a, he's baptized other players, actually. And uh, I mean, Jurgen Klopp is a Lutheran, a different mm. form of Christian. But... The, um, English players of Afro-Caribbean background, uh, Rashford, um, Raheem Sterling. And because they're Christians and they're more outspoken, it's enabled other people to speak about their faith. I still think it's a minority, but there are um, you know, Brazilian, South Korean, all sorts of players now from, from other countries who, who do speak about their faith. And, of course, it's not just Christianity. Uh, Mo Salah is, is a devout Muslim. You, you have, there are a number of Muslim players who are secular, but there are some who take their faith very seriously. It's been an issue mm-hmm. during Ramadan in terms of what they can eat and so on, and other religions too. Um, so there is that connection. I, I've often thought, though, that in a way, football has almost replaced religion because I don't know if this sounds too flippant, but you, you have the, the crowd is the congregation, the players are revered. The chants and songs are the hymns. The game is a liturgy. And you know, there was a time in England when if you weren't at an Anglican church uh, on a Sunday, you could lose your job on the Monday. So everyone was at church. And we're talking about right up until uh, the 1920s, certainly Edwardian England. Mm-hmm. Well, those guys then, you know, 
suddenly football comes in. And I do think people need something communal, something tribal. So, but they use it as an excuse too, don't they? I mean, look at look at Rangers and Celtic, for example, as extreme, you know, the cyclism there. I mean, it, I understand what you're saying there it can be so positive, but it's also used against them as well. Oh, certainly. I mean, and Scotland was particularly so. Dundee and Dundee United, Hibs and Hearts, they also had that divide at one point. Right. To a certain degree, Liverpool and Everton, but it was never quite the same. Uh, but Rangers Celtic is still very bad. And, and, and I don't think it's about religion. I think it's about tribe. I think it's about Irish Catholic immigration during the, after the famine and Glasgow being a divided city. And, and so you have these two tribes that have been set up and, and they're represented even in Northern Ireland. I mean, Rangers and Celtic fans leave Northern Ireland from different ports for games. They can't leave from the same places. So <laughs> the, the, the two manifestations, the two sacraments of these two tribes are Rangers and Celtic. But uh, I honestly don't think that a Rangers fan is saying, I really oppose Celtic because they're these untransubstantiation and heretical. I really don't think that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you're right there. I was talking to a, uh, a, a Rangers fan the other day, and he was talking and saying that he watched Celtic win the European Cup, who were actually the first British team to, to win the European Cup. I think Man United won it the year after. And he, I said, we're... Were you cheering for Celtic? And he said, absolutely not. <laughs> Are you nope. kidding? He goes, I, I was hoping they were going to get stuffed. And, and, and really, even to, to this day, it's one of the greatest upsets of all time, uh, that yeah. particular game. I would uh, just remind people, though, the first British team to win a European tournament were Tottenham in 1963 when they beat Atletico Madrid <laughs> 5-1 in Rotterdam, I believe. And... I can, I can never forget that because I, I saw the Super 8 film of that game, the <laughs> Super 8 shown by yeah. my dad over and over again. Dad, I've seen it 20 times. I'll watch it again. And, uh, <laughs> that's, the, that's the last trophy you guys won, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> and also, we should have won the European <laughs> Cup in 62, and the game was rigged. There is no doubt that game was rigged, and we actually beat Benfica, and we would have won them anyway. But that's another issue. Uh, yeah, and, and the thing about that was uh, the Celtic players, all of them came from Glasgow and around. There, were no right. farm, there weren't even any players from Edinburgh yeah. or Dundee or Stone. No, they were the, all from the local area. That's Amazing. right. They're all within 30 miles of the club. Yeah. Remarkable. Yeah. Remarkable, yeah. But what is this Spurs team right now? What do you think? I mean, uh, Nuno had a tough time. Right. Um, Conte has come in and shows some, you know, his energy on the on the touchline, you can't help but feed off it as a player. There's no doubt about that. But he's uh, unbeaten in the Premier League. Uh, they got a big match coming up against Chelsea in the semifinal of the League Cup. Lukaku is well involved. You know, is he going to be involved, you know, and it's connection with Conte in Italy. I mean, there's a lot of side stories to this. But the good news is, I mean, I guess, you know, Spurs won their last trophy in 2008, right, I think? Yeah, or nine, so eight or nine League Cup, yeah. and uh, so it's uh, it's an interesting matchup because both teams are in a great position to go on and win this tournament. Well, um, I mean, Spurs were just in free fall because when they signed a ma- manager, I felt a bit sorry for him, but I don't think he should have been signed. It, they didn't have anyone to manage. I thought I was going to get the phone call. Would I come and manage them? But he, you know, he shouldn't have been given that job, and 
quite clearly, well, quite clearly, it seems to be that uh, Conti insisted on a certain budget and it was turned down. And desperately, I think they've said, okay, we'll give you that budget. So I'm very optimistic in the next couple of weeks. And then again, in the summer, we're going to spend some big money and buy probably five players. But Tottenham, I mean, James and I were chatting uh, earlier. They, they, they were running the lowest number of miles of any premiership team. And now they're, they're running the highest number of miles of any premiership team. And the tackling, you can see the tackling is fierce now. And if you don't play like that, you're not going to start for the team. And they, they do have some great players. I mean, they have some really great players there. And they, it seems to be working. Now, I don't really care about the League Cup, to be honest with you. I mean, whatever. Uh, I've been to a number of League Cup finals over the years. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was saying them beat Norwich in one, Villa in another. Uh, but I do – I'm doing a podcast. I have to be careful. I'm not enormously <laughs> fond of Chelsea. And, in fact, if you ask me the team I, I like the least in the entire world, it would be Chelsea. So, um, uh, why is that? Is well, is it... Why? Yeah, give us a couple. Well, I grew up in Ilford, which is East London, Essex area, which is, is very much a West Ham area. Yeah. So when I went to school, most kids were West Ham fans. Minority were Tottenham and a few, as always, Man United. You know? um, but... Because I grew up, and my oldest friend is a West Ham fan, I, I don't, I can't dislike West Ham that much. The traditional rivalry with Arsenal is a very interesting one because actually Spurs and Arsenal have a very similar DNA. And uh, if you look at the, the, the fan base, it's very similar. You know, Tottenham have this reputation of being a Jewish team. But I, I would say there are more Jewish supporters of Arsenal, actually. But they're both North London. They both have a big... Jewish, Irish, uh, Turkish, Greek, Italian support base. Um, so they, they're actually very similar in a lot of ways. Arsenal were a more established and wealthier team, a ton of more working class. But when I was growing up uh, in the uh, mid-70s, well, early to mid-70s, the National Front and, and, and fascism was a – it was never a big thing. I mean, you know, they, they were never going to take – sweep the country. They were a tiny fringe of nutters. <laughs> but Chelsea was their place. That was the hotbed. Now, the vast majority of Chelsea fans are not like that. They never were. But if you were a fascist in London, that's where you went. And so Tottenham-Chelsea games were bad. They really were very bad. I mean, like, Chelsea – I remember Chelsea uh, fans making hissing noises. It was meant to be the gas at, at death camps uh, when Tottenham came on the pitch. Mm-hmm. They would unravel this big column 88 banner, 88, I mean, the eighth letter of the alphabet, H, Heil Hitler. And again, a small minority, but, but you know, Chelsea was the centre of it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't any other team. And so I've always, it's very hard to, um, to, to expunge that experience. And, right, right. Uh, so uh, Chelsea, I have, I have friends, I have dear friends who are Chelsea fans. But for me, uh, no, I don't like them. And the year we should have won the premiership, when Leicester won it, and we should, because we were the best yeah. team. Uh, and Chelsea, that Chelsea game had a lot to do with us not winning it. As well. Yeah, the meltdown, that, that yeah. complete meltdown yeah. where, well, where Spurs, it was supposed to. At West Ham, we just had the inner city firm, so they were they were they were. Fine. Well, I mean, you know the IC, the ICF, yeah. I mean, all of that, 
and I knew I knew some of the guys involved in that sort of thing because we were next to Dagenham, and but they weren't right. as they weren't as bad. They they were you know they I'm not saying they were angels, but it wasn't as organised and political as it was with with Chelsea. And and I've mm-hmm. said it several times. I just want to emphasise not all Chelsea fans. And um, but I'm, when um, who was the Israeli player who played for Chelsea? Uh, played for uh, West Ham. Yossi, uh, Oh, Bukovic, yeah. Uh, no, Bukovic. Ben Yeah, Ben Yeah, after him. But yeah, that, he said that uh, Chelsea, and he was playing for him. He said that was the worst experience he'd ever had. Some of the things that were said, you know, you could hear, hear the things being said about him, the chants and so on. So mm. they, they have a problem at Chelsea, and I'm not sure. Well, they, they do recognize it, and, you know, they have a Jewish owner, for goodness sake, and they do come out with some very noble statements, but... There is a problem there at Chelsea. There is a problem. And uh, I'm not sure. Well, I mean, it goes deeper, doesn't it? I, I wrote a piece in the New Statesman in the UK about this. Um, the gestures made against racism and mainly it's anti-black racism, of course. And things have improved a great deal, but they they need to change still. But society has to change. But <laughs> taking the knee is a wonderful thing, but it has to go further than that. And You talk about... To- um- you talk about how you know the, the foreign players come over and they make Christianity more acceptable, perhaps in in the locker room, on the pitch. Um, in that regard, with the game changing and society changing as well, how long before we we see an openly gay footballer? Do you think in the top flight of European football? I, I saw Graham Souness interviewed about this. I'm uh, I'm on vacation right now, so I spend way too much time going to the Facebook page, the bit where you can watch videos. You know, and, you, and I've, you've been, I've been on this for two hours. That's probably not a good thing. But um, <laughs> just yesterday, I was watching Sunes being interviewed about that, and he said it. it you know, it can't be long now. Um, there was a time when it would have been impossible. You know, that no no gay player would have done it. And and um, but in England, for a player to come out, I, I don't think it'll be long now. Uh, do, you re- I, do you remember when Justin Fashionu he came out? But I think that was after he maybe even come to Canada. Yeah, and his and his brother John wasn't supportive at all with him. No, I remember that. Well, it was really quite tragic. Was John a born again Christian? I'm not sure. I don't know if I'm right in that. But I, there were, uh, there were the other crazy gang. He couldn't have been part of the crazy gang. He couldn't have been a Christian. Well. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, 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 there was a context, wasn't there? And um, but the timing that would have been so difficult. But in rugby, it's happened, and um, mm-hmm. the, the reaction was wonderful. It's a different crowd, a different environment. I, I'm not sure what the reaction will be. I think there'll be. Well, I mean, you, you see the rainbow flags um, at uh, many clubs now. Many teams have. have um, uh, you mentioned Stephen Fry, uh, um, not Norwich uh, Gate. LGBTQ canaries, or whether uh, at Norwich, he's, he's I think probably chairman of that, and, mm-hmm. and a lot of clubs. Uh, I remember uh, what, uh, my younger son who played played football um, at, at a relatively high level. Um, they put rainbow laces in their boots. One they had they, were, they had this special day where they had to put rainbow laces in their boots, and I said, "What was the reaction in the dressing room?" He said, "Nothing." Well, <laughs> when I was growing up. Would have been beyond comprehension. 
Well, listen, even at European Championships now, Euros, you know, it's it's you know frowned upon by the authorities, right? It's a political gesture. Yeah, which, which <laughs> so is, we're still fighting that, right? So I know. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's thing is that's the thing. It's not political. It, it, it it's it, it's human. It's it's humanitarian. And uh, I mean, I know people attack England and English culture. Uh, it's very quite easy and comfortable to do that. Actually, in some ways, England is is ahead of the curve. And you both know as well as I do. You will hear things chanted and said in parts of Europe that you would never hear in England anymore. Which is, England is far from perfect, but there has been progress made. Uh, but on that issue, I don't know. I don't think it'll be very long. And I'm, I'm optimistic. I, I, hope, I hope I'm correct, but I'm optimistic that people will accept it. I mean, the football establishment will accept it, and, 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 and commentators will. Uh, how will mm. crowds? I don't know. Crowds look for any weak points. You know that, too. I mean, Craig, you must have heard yeah, the course. most appalling thing said to you. They're, they're trying to provoke you. So... Yeah. Um, I remember yeah, when I, For- Forrest Gump came out, even just that movie alone, you know, I saw saw the trailer of it, remember, and I'm just like, oh, no, and it's spelt the same way. <laughs> <laughs> run, Forrest, run. Oh, oh wow. And, and, and there were times you, you were just five or six feet away from the crowd, right behind you. There must have been... At Upton Park, especially. I mean, that was when I was playing... For Ipswich at Upton Park, that yeah. and they were right behind the net. There is a fantastic stadium. I love playing with West Ham there, but going there was a a real, just very hostile. You know, yeah. You remember back in those <laughs> days, it was it was a different event. Oh god! But of course, it, it goes both ways, right? I mean, obviously, you're going to be you know vilified by a certain contingent, but also you can be worshipped like you are a god. And, and I mean, Michael, as as a priest now, someone with a, a devout faith. I mean, do football fans have it all wrong when they deify these footballers as being greater than, than gods? I mean, it, it does go too far, doesn't it? Well, it does, but um, my uncle Harold, my dad's brother, was offered a contract by Norwich City, uh, who were then in the third division south. <laughs> and he was driving a cab, and he couldn't take the pay cut. <laughs> so that that tells you how things have changed. And the fact that a few, a very few working class guys earn a fortune, uh, I'm not going to criticize that. Uh, now, the way they're revered, um, a lot of them seem to be very decent guys when I see the way they react with the crowd and things. And uh, I don't know. Um, I, I don't, rev- do I revere? I mean, I, I, I love watching certain players and, you know, you, you, and the, the Tottenham thing. I mean, people say, especially when they're not from England, well, why are you a Tottenham fan? But that's not the question. I couldn't be anything else. You know, you just, and it, this applies to anyone who's been raised. That was always, that, that's my, my, my tribe, my being, my person. And, and you see them run out and I have this feeling. And, and I watched the Tottenham Chelsea game on, on Wednesday and um, I'll probably be on my own. And, if, and I won't be wearing a dog collar when I'm watching it because, you know, I will react in a certain way. <laughs> <laughs> we're all sinners. There's things you can't say. There's certain all, things you just can't sinners. say. I can, I, I, I can forgive myself, which is very convenient. But um, I, I don't know if, if loving football and even loving certain footballers uh, and worshipping God are mutually exclusive. And, uh, you know, I, I know people, and it, it goes beyond football, other sports as well. One of my dearest friends, he, he, he was killed 
on his motorbike a few years ago, uh, tragically wonderful priest. He was a huge Leafs fan, and they just you know, enormous Leafs fan. And so I, no, I, I think I think they're different things. But I mean, you're right; they, it can be a replacement. As I mentioned earlier, I, I think organized sport can be because people need. There's there's the idea that we have a god shaped vacuum in us. Now I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, the idea of of worship and uh, solidarity or belief in something beyond you, perhaps supernatural in the case of religion, or perhaps not in the case of sport, that's pretty much a constant, uh, and it's it's always been there. I mean, you think back to when when people were very poor, uh, hundred and twenty thousand people, and in an England Scotland game at Hampden Park, you know, and, and People had nothing, but they'd get the money to go and, and, and watch that. And um, I think about my, my dad growing up in Tottenham and then Hackney and, and, you know, really poor, tiny little apartment that he and his siblings lived in and you know, got the money to go to White Hart Lane as a child and then all through his youth and and, and so on. Um, I, always no, I, don't, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. And I, and I certainly don't believe – look, I think goodness and kindness uh, – please God, same way I believe that a, a loving relationship between two people of the same gender is God-honoring. It's an aspect of love. I think if you live your life thinking of others, empathizing with others, compassion, decency, goodness, kindness, whatever your religion, I think that's an aspect of God because I believe we're created by God and we're created to love. And so if we love, we are honoring God. And the fact that we get excited at a football match and, and we sing a few songs about certain players – that doesn't mean that we don't believe in God. Mm -hmm. One thing I did uh, uh, find when I was playing the, the dressing room, whether it was foreign players or or Scottish or local players for that matter, I found that they they were in touch with their community uh, much more than I would think that some North American sports athletes are. Uh, they come from working class backgrounds, the mass majority of them. Uh, I see with the work that uh, Marcus Rashford has done in Manchester yeah. and, and, and really all around Britain, it's just been fantastic. And those types of things and those types of uh, players uh, can go a long way um, to helping push things in the right direction as far as our culture goes. Oh, yeah. Well, Rashford in particular, Marcus Rashford changed British politics. Uh, yeah. I, I don't mean forever, uh, but he changed British policy, certainly. And he did it in such a, a charming and gentle way. And he wasn't really partisan. I mean, I'm sure he has a party that he, he doesn't vote for, I can imagine. But uh, <laughs> you know, he didn't come out in that way. It was just, look, certain things are wrong. And um, for those who don't know about this, it was... Um, giving school meals to kids uh, during the, the, the pandemic when they weren't at school. And he said, well, you know, beyond that, these kids can't always, and, and he just pushed and pushed. And, uh, you know, a, a beautiful, wonderful young man. But I think a lot of players are doing good work. There's also a difference, actually, uh, in terms of British and North American sport when it comes to, to religiosity, because the, the American, not so much the Canadian, but the American attitude towards Christianity is a different one. And there are too many American Christians seem to think that, that, that Christianity was founded somewhere in the Midwest. And it wasn't. It was founded in, in Southwest Asia, the Middle East. I mean, it, it comes from Jerusalem and, and then it moved through that. Uh, and it is, well, I believe it's a, it's a revolutionary faith, a radical change and transformation. But it's not nationalistic. It's not about patriotism. It, and it's not about victory. 
And there is a tendency in the US where there are a lot of chaplains around sometimes to pray for victory. Well, that's ludicrous. I, you know, God is, well, God obviously is a Tottenham fan, but God is not saying, <laughs> I want one team to win. Now, I, I, I know some of the work that chaplains do in England, and what they pray for is the safety of the players. They pray that every player will leave the pitch today safe, safely and not yeah. badly injured. Um, and and for, that's what they pray for. And it is very different, and it's much more subtle. And... Not to give anything away, but the chaplains I know, a lot of the work they do is with players who have long-term injury, who get very bored, uh, young players who are, who are released from a club. You're, you're told from the age of 10 or 11, you're the greatest thing to have ever, ever been born. And the age of 17, you're, you're told, I'm afraid we have to get, let you go. And it can be devastating for them. So they work with, with them. And, um, you know, I know a chaplain who helped a very well-known player actually through uh, his wife having a, a late miscarriage it's the sort of thing they do that they, they do wonderful work but it's not about sit- i mean they're not in the dressing room anyway but it's something not, not about saying let's have a prayer circle here i mean can you imagine asking some players to get in a prayer circle yeah i know can you imagine Sh- sean deitch getting his guys around him for a quick prayer <laughs> I, I just can't see it at burnley but when you do see a player you know scoring a big goal and pointing to the heavens yeah. Or, or thanking God post match for for this 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 win. I mean, how does that make you feel? To me, it seems quite disingenuous in in, in many ways. Oh, I know, I know what you mean. Well, I remember Frank Lampard. I think he was it was his dad who who died, and he was just his mum. I think it was. Yeah, it was his mom. Um, mm-hmm. So sometimes the gestures can be misread. Um, it can be one of humility. You know, there are there are some Muslim players who fall to their knees, and I think that will be an act. I, you know, I'm, I'm not qualified to discuss Islam, but I think it will be an act of humility. And so, if we think about it in that way, this is not me. Now, again, it's not. You know, God has not said I want this team to score, but something greater than me. I don't know. I mean, yes, I do understand it can appear crass at times. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's just a sport, and, and you've you've had you've done something very clever there, or you've been lucky and you've scored, and God wasn't involved. Uh, I like in an optimistic way to think they're saying it's something better and greater than me. Um, what was Maradona saying in 86? He was saying he was a cheat. Every time I've seen an interview with someone who knew him, he always comes across as being a really nice person, <laughs> actually, who, who was quite helpful to others and... and um, mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> that's not how we paint him. <laughs> no, no he scores point, a couple of goals. Mind you, they were the better team, but that uh, yeah, you know, that, that that is that is a yeah. long time. I don't know. I mean, players can be. Uh, yeah, Craig, you know far more about this than I do. But um, I'm trying to think what things I'm allowed to say. Well, I think I'm allowed to repeat this. The the former chaplain at Manchester United, um, he was dealing with Roy Keane over something. And uh, and Roy Keane asked him if he could help, and and the chaplain who, who was a, I think a Baptist actually, but he said yeah he said I can he said but you know I, the, I, the Catholic priest uh, locally I can put you in touch with him if you like and Keane said he said no he's an Irishman I've already fallen out with him. <laughs> <laughs> of course he has. Of course he has. <laughs> That's right. He's running out of options. Hey, Michael, we're, we're running out of time here, but I do want to mention uh, your, your most recent book, uh, The Rebel Christ, ah. um, which, you know, 
from what I, I won't lie to you, I haven't read the whole thing just yet. I'm, I'm making my way through it, but it's, it's very not that interesting. Long, you know, it's not that I know, long. I know. I've been busy over Christmas. What can I say? But I mean, listen, whether you whether you have a faith or, or don't have faith, it's a fascinating read, and I think it touches on what you've mentioned on this show so far today. How how you know, modern Christianity is being interpreted wrong, but by so many people, and at its essence, you really can't argue the goodness, whether you believe or, or don't believe. The sales are going very well, I hear. <laughs> well, More importantly. In, in, in Canada and the UK, I, on the, in the UK, I was on with James O'Brien, who has a big show on LBC. Um, yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. I, I, I mm. strongly recommend him. Very intelligent, very good guy. And I, I was on for 10 minutes, and the sales went through the roof. Um, but hasn't broken. I can't guarantee the same with this. I can't guarantee oh, the I'm same. Sure you, you never know. You never know. Let us know if it is the case. You know, what, what I would say. I don't want to get too religious on you, but um, God chose a specific time and place to become one of us, to become human. And he chose to be uh, the son of a a teenage Jewish girl living under occupation. And he grew up in a working class family. And then as an adult, he owned no property and he lived in a communal sense. Um, he hung out with people who were despised by many former sex workers, terrorist leaders, tax collectors, working class people. Um, he called for forgiveness awesome. and love. Um, he condemned wealth and materialism and legalism. And he was eventually executed and, and murdered, tortured um, for, for his views. And he knew that would happen. So he came to be with us knowing he would suffer. But you know, he could have come as a monarch or a warlord or an investment banker or anything else. But he chose to be this working class person living with those on the fringes. He was a revolutionary figure. I, I believe he was a son of God too. But he, he was a figure who called for the world to be transformed for equality and redistribution of wealth and, 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 and love and inclusion. Not the conservative caricature that is painted by so many, particularly in North America. Well, good luck with the book, Michael. Uh, I do recommend all our listeners uh, buy it, give it a chance. It's it's fascinating reading for sure. And this has been a great conversation too, Michael. We know you're a massive football fan. You really know your stuff and you're always welcome on this show to discuss Thank whatever you. you like, basically, be it Spurs, be it God. We don't care. Just come well, on. They're, they're, they're interchangeable in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And you look great in a collar. It really does look good on you. It does. Thank yeah, you're going to say. I'm, well, I'm a little bit, you know, I grew up uh, in Catholic schools, so I'm a little bit intimidated. But, uh, well, yeah. so you should be. I mean, there are some photos of me in the Tottenham shirt as well, but this is better. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, thanks so much. Really enjoyed this. A real pleasure. Thanks, guys. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 